In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day and for this opportunity to study your word together. We ask, O Lord, for your blessing and your enlightenment. Grant us your peace at all times and grant us to fulfill all your commandments. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, good evening, everybody. Uh, God willing, today we're going to continue studying the book of Genesis. Um, last time we studied Genesis 13, 14, and part of 15. Uh, and God willing, today we're going to uh, continue with chapter 15 where we left off. I'm just going to read the first uh eight, chap eight uh, verses that we covered last time in Genesis 15, and then we'll continue from there. Um, but before we continue, just wanted to, uh, you know, ask uh, if anybody would like to give a summary of what it is that we studied last time for those who were present last time uh, in Genesis 13 and 14. Uh, does anyone remember what we talked about last time? You can just raise your hand and I'll unmute you. Okay. Um, so in, in Genesis 13, uh, we covered uh, Abram who had, after arriving at Canaan, he had fled to Egypt. Uh, because of a famine. So in chapter 13, he returns uh, back to Canaan from Egypt after that. Uh, also, there's a disagreement between Abram, uh, uh, the, the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot. So Lot and Abram decided that they were going to part ways because the land was not enough to support both of them. Um, Abram asked Lot to choose which uh, land he would like to dwell in. And so Abram chooses the most fertile land and uh, there, which was the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, whereas Abram uh, takes the land that he was in and God tells Abram that he will inherit all of this land. Um, that's chapter 13. In chapter 14, um, Sodom, where Lot is living and all the neighboring regions are taken captive uh, by a king whose name is Shedrilomer. And Lot is kidnapped, Lot and his family. Abram mounts a rescue to save Lot and to rescue all the people that have been captured. Um, and this is when, uh, and he, he has victory. And then this is where we meet this mysterious figure of Melchizedek, which we said was uh, a type of Christ being both a king and a priest. Okay, that's chapter 14. Chapter 15, um, God confirms his covenant with Abram again. And this is where we're going to, to look in more detail today. Okay. If you remember from last time, I said that we we're going to have a cliffhanger and that the, 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 the symbolism of what we're going to read today is among the deepest that we're going to find in the whole scripture. And so we're going to go over that. So again, I'm going to read the first eight verses pretty quickly, and then we're going to get to the covenant and, and the, 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 the agreement that God is making with Abram and, and what does it mean? Okay, so we'll start at the beginning of chapter 15. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Uh, 
It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. We know that uh, Abram needed to have a son in order for him to uh, inherit and have all these generations come from him as God has promised. Um, then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. This man, Eliezer, was one of the servants. And because Abram didn't have any male children, he would have been the one to inherit uh, Abram. Then he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So here God is reaffirming again the covenant that he had made with him, that he is going to give all this land to him, that he is going to have uh, descendants more than the sand of the sea and the, and the stars of the sky and and in and, and, and very, very um, strong terminology. He's saying he's going to give him all of these things. Okay. So then Abram asked this question, how shall I know? Like, like what, on what basis will I know? So now God is going to perform a very strange ritual, okay? And this ritual is in response to this question, how shall I know, okay? So we're going to read the ritual, okay? And then after we read the ritual, we're going to discuss what it actually means, okay? So this we start this in verse 9. It says, so he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these things to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. Okay, this, is, this is prophetic, speaking about the, the people in Egypt, the Hebrews in Egypt, that they would be slaves, right? And that and strangers in the land, and then God will bring them up, right? Bring them out of there, and God would judge those people who were um, were were their slave masters, who in this case the Egyptians. Okay. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. Okay, so that's the that that's that's what happened. Okay, so 
Adam, or sorry, Abram, he got these animals, okay? He got these animals. And then he cut the animals in half in the middle, and he put one half of the animal on one side, and he put the other half of the animal on the other side. And then this deep sleep came upon Abram, and as a part of this sleep, right, it says, it came to pass when the sun went down, then it was dark, that behold, there, was, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces, okay? And also there were some prophecies about what was going to happen to his descendants in the future, prophesying the, the slavery of the Hebrews in Egypt, okay? So what in the world does this mean? Okay, and this again, like I mentioned last time, it's one of those things that we tend to read and gloss over it because we can't find an answer, and it seems very strange. Okay, um, here what God is doing, remember this is in response to the question that Abram asks God is, how will I know that these things are going to come to pass? Meaning that you, you are going to fulfill this promise that I am actually going to be the father of many nations and generations will come from me. So in Jewish tradition, there was a type of covenant or agreement which was called the blood covenant or the blood path, okay? And this uh, process or this ritual of the blood covenant involved the nine steps, okay? And this was a, a ritual that would be performed between two people, like any two people that wanted to have like a solemn vow between them, like an agreement between them, that something that they had promised they will keep, okay? And they are essentially like vowing their lives to one another and vowing certain things to one another. And so in as a as like a proof of the seriousness, as a proof of that these people are going to keep their word, okay? They would perform this blood covenant, okay? And again, this blood covenant has nine steps. So I'm going to describe the nine steps, right? In this blood covenant. And then I'm going to describe how God fulfilled these nine steps in this uh, in, in this vision that that uh, Abram saw. Okay, the first step of this blood covenant is called the exchanging of robes. Okay, and in this, the two people making the covenant, they would exchange robes or clothing, right, to represent like the the robe represents the person themselves. So when you exchange it. Essentially, you are offering yourself and even your life for the sake of the other. This covenant was not just uh, like an agreement about something. This, this, this was like essentially saying we have become family. We have become blood. We have become one, you know. And so it's like I'm offering my life to you and you are offering your life to me and this exchanging of robes. And that's the first step of this blood covenant. The second step was the exchanging of belts. Okay, so one person would take their belt and give it to the other and vice versa. The belt, um, it, it was used to hold like a sword or a knife that you would carry with you. You would carry it in your belt. So in this way, by exchanging your belt, you're essentially offering your protection to the other. So essentially, if somebody attacks you, it's the same thing as them attacking me. Somebody attacks you, then I will come to your aid. I will protect you. I will fight your battles for you and you are fight your battles for me, okay? So that's the second step of this blood covenant. The third step was called cutting the covenant, okay? And that's the step that we see here in this vision, the cutting the covenant. In this part, the animal is killed and is cut down the middle. 
and then the two halves are laid opposite each other, okay? And, and in this cutting the covenant step, the two people that, that make the covenant walk in this, what is called the blood path, which is like the trail of blood that's made on the ground after having slaughtered these animals and separated them, right? It makes this, this path of blood. So the two people would walk down this path of blood, right? And, and this is like essentially saying that if I break this covenant, then, um, then, then may this be done to me. Like if I break this covenant, may I be slaughtered in this way, right? To be cut down the middle. So again, it, it was reaffirming the seriousness of this covenant that we are taking this oath of blood, saying that I am I'm consenting to, to be killed if I break my part of this covenant, okay? That's the third step of the nine. The fourth step was called the mingling of blood. And here actually each of the person would cut the palm of their hand with a knife and then they would clasp each other's hand together, like shake each other's hand together in order for the blood of each person to mingle with the other, right? This is again, essentially saying that we are becoming one, that we have one blood, that we are intermingling our, our very lives together, that we have become one, right? It's a very, very, very like intimate agreement. This isn't just a casual agreement. This is a very, very strong agreement, okay? The fifth step is that they would exchange names. So each one of the people would take part of the name of the other person and incorporate it into their own. So this is like a changing of identity. Like this, this covenant is so strong that I'm taking your name upon myself. I'm identifying myself with you and you're identifying yourself with me. The sixth step was to make a scar on your body, okay? And this scar was like an outward evidence or outward proof of the covenant so that everyone else could see that I have made a covenant with you, okay? And anyone who wants to fight me knows that by fighting me, I'm also fighting the other person, okay? So it was an outward sign that the covenant has been made. The seventh step was actually making the terms of the covenant, right? So both of the parties making this agreement, they would convey the terms um, before a witness and they would list all of their assets and liabilities and everything. Um, uh, and, and essentially you're saying everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine, right? And if something happens to you, your covenant partner or the covenant partner would see to it that your wife and children are taken care of. So if you die, then all of your possessions are my responsibility. Your family is my responsibility. I will take care of them. I'll make sure that they're taken care of, okay? Um, the eighth step of this covenant is eating the memorial meal, okay? And in this meal, there would be a loaf of bread that would be broken in half and each person would feed, uh, feed the, uh, his own half to the other person, right? So we break it in half. I would take my piece. I would feed the other person with my piece. With my piece. And, I, and the person would say, this is my body and I am now giving it to you, okay? And then they would take wine as a symbol of the blood of the person and say, this is my blood, which is now your blood, right? So... So it's, 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 it's essentially saying this bread and this wine represents the body and the blood of the person making the covenant, and they are giving this to the other person, okay? The ninth step is, which is the last step, 
is planting a memorial tree, okay? The two people would then plant a tree as a memorial of this covenant, and they would sprinkle the tree with the blood of the animals that were killed for the, in the covenant offering back in the third step, the cutting of the covenant, okay? So you can see that this was very, very, very serious type of covenant, an agreement that was being done between these two people. So in the ancient Jewish times, this was a type of covenant, a type of agreement that was done between two people, okay? So now let's look at what is it that uh, God did here with Abram, and more than that, what is it that God has done with us as his people, right? Like what, are, what is it that God has done with us and, and, and how this applies in this covenant, okay? So the first is, the first step was the exchanging of robes, okay? The exchanging of robes is essentially the exchanging of nature, right? We read in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, it says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So the work of salvation was what? Is God is taking upon himself our sin and he is imparting upon us his righteousness, right? Which is exactly what this exchanging of robes is, okay? He gave us, and we, 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 we pray this on the Friday Theotokia, we say he took what is ours and gave us what is his, right? He took sin on himself and he gave us righteousness. And so this is the exchanging, the exchanging of robes, so to speak, that fulfills this covenant, okay? That's the first one, the exchanging of robes. The second is the exchanging of belts, okay? And, and here, remember, this means protection, right? This means that, that the, 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 the people are offering protection to each other. And, and even earlier in this chapter, in, in, in verse 1 of Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Right? So God is offering protection. He is the shield. Also, when we read in Ephesians chapter 6 about the armor of God, right? God is giving us this armor for protection. Right? So God is offering us protection. This is the second part of the covenant. Right? The third part, which is the part that we see here so clearly in this vision, um, and 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 in, um, in in what God in what God asked Abram to do, okay, by cutting the animals in half and putting them opposite one another, right? This is the blood path. So, as I said before, the the two people making the covenant, they would walk down this path, and and that would mean that if any one of them were to break the covenant, they are consenting to be killed, just like in this way. Okay, but there is something unique here about this path that 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 uh, Abram sees, and that after uh, uh, after doing this, right? Because it says uh, in verse ten, it says, "Then he brought all these to them and cut them in two down the middle and placed each opposite the other." Okay, and when uh, and when the sun had gone down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, right? And then further down, it says. Uh, and it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. Okay, so so Abram got the animals, he split them in half, he made the blood path. And then uh, when the sun went down, 
right? And it was dark, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. So what is unique here about this compared to the, the blood path, the cutting of the covenant that I described, right? Does anyone want to venture a guess? What do you think is, is unique here about this path that God is making with Abraham and this covenant compared to the normal way that it's done uh, that I described between two people? You can either type the answer or you can raise your hand and I'll unmute you. Sharif. Uh, one, yeah, one first thing I would notice is different is that God, uh, he walks the path by himself. Uh, God walked the path by himself. Yes. God walked the path by himself. So what does that mean? I'm asking everyone or asking me again? Whoever, whoever wants to answer. What is the significance of God walking the path by himself? Uh, Sandy wants to answer. Sandy? Uh. Does it like resemble the cross? Sorry? Is it what? Does it resemble the cross? Does it resemble the cross? Yes, but be more specific. Somebody says the Gentile and the Jews. It's not the Gentile and the Jews. Right, because this is a this is a, a a relationship and a covenant between God and the people, right? Somebody said he is not making an offering. Okay, well, but this part of the this part of the blood path, two people are supposed to walk down this path, okay, and and each one of them is telling the other, if I break this covenant then I consent to be killed, right? That's what, that's what it means. So how does the cross play into this? You're close. Somebody said he was the only one who was able to save us. Very close, right? That's, that's actually, that, that's right. So, so what is it that God did? Essentially, God made a covenant, okay? God made a covenant and he said, even if you break the covenant, I will be the one to be punished, right? Because the two people that walk down this path, one of them is going to be punished if the covenant is broken. And the one to be punished is the one who broke the covenant. But here God walked this path alone. Essentially saying, if you break the covenant, I will be the one to accept the punishment for it, right? And, and this is what we see is, is the work of salvation, right? This is the work of salvation that God performed on the cross, right? God committed to die for us, for our sins, even though we were imperfect, even though we broke the covenant, even though we, we didn't hold up our part, 
of the covenant, right? God is not punishing us for this. He's saying, I will the one who will take the punishment for this. And this is really the beauty of this, uh, of this ritual here that, that they're doing. When we understand what's actually happening, you see the love that, ha that God has for us, that he is not punishing us according to our sins. His mercy is shown in this, in this covenant because he knew from the very beginning that we are going to break it, that we are not going to you know, uphold our part of the bargain. And, and this is also important for us to, to understand like God's mercy. Like we, we do not, we are unable to live up to the commandments that he has given, which is why salvation was offered, which is why Christ came to be crucified because we were unable to live up according to the commandments that were given. And so God is, 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 is taking that consequence upon himself. Okay. Very good. But there's more, right? There's more. So the fourth step, remember, was the mingling of blood where, where the people would cut their hands and then they would mingle their blood together. Okay. In the incarnation, that's exactly what God did. God intermingled with us. He took our flesh on us intermingling with our blood, intermingling with our flesh, intermingling with our nature, right? And he even shed his blood for us, okay? So this was intermingling, intermingling blood. Okay, we have a question. Amani. Wait. No. Sorry, there you go. I, I am a little lost. I'm sorry. On the cutting of the covenant step? Yes, um, as far as how is it that he is the one that's walking alone? Where is it that he is in the covenant? I don't get it. Sure. In verse 17, okay, um, in verse 17, it says, And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. That, that, that represented God. Okay, that represented God. That was uh, that was something that like like uh, like uh, something that um, that Abram saw as a vision. Okay, and this uh, uh, smoking oven and burning torch walked down that path, and so God never asked Abram to walk the path. He never asked him. He didn't tell Abram, "I want you to come and walk the path with me," right? Which is the traditional way that this is done. Instead, God walked the path by Himself. And because God walked by the path by himself, it represents that he is taking the consequence of breaking the covenant on himself because we didn't have to walk the path. Okay. I hope that, I hope that makes sense. If not, you can, um, you can raise your hand again. I'll try to clarify some more. Um, okay. So mingling of blood. We, we covered that. Number five, exchanging names. Okay, exchanging names. After the incarnation, right, the son of God became known as the son of man. Okay, he became known as the son of man. And actually, we became known as sons of God, right? And actually, God himself became known as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, right? He is the God of man, right? He is the son of man because he is incarnate. And we became sons of God, children of God, right? So that's an exchanging of names, right? That each one takes the name of the other, right? The sixth step, 
in the uh, in this uh, blood covenant is making a scar, okay? Making a scar. Both took on a scar, okay? God took on the scar of what? The cross. Sharif is making the cross sign. Very good. The scar of the nails on the cross. Okay. What about us? What scar did we take? Um, I'm having two guesses. Either it's baptism or the or the chrismation. Almost. What is before baptism? What, what, what came before baptism that was the symbol of baptism? Oh, circumcision. Circumcision, right? So this literal scar of circumcision, right, fulfilled this idea of the covenant of the Old Testament. But we know that circumcision is not just the circumcision of the flesh. In Romans 2.29, it said, but he uh, is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter. The idea of circumcision is the cutting off of something, the, the, the sacrificing of something, right? We are sacrificing. We are giving up something of ours for the sake of God, right? And this is, this is what the symbol of circumcision means. And actually, baptism is a dying, right? Our old nature completely dies, and we are resurrected again, right? So, so this is the scar, so to speak, that we have a mark on ourselves, right? This is the mark. Remember, the scar was, was the symbol by which other people could look at us and know that we are in a covenant, right? And so when, when people look at the, the wounds on Christ and the holes of the nails on Christ, they remember the covenant that he made with humanity. And when people see that we are baptized, now in the New Testament, baptized, right? Then we are, this is the symbol and the sign of the covenant from our end, that we are upholding the covenant from our end. Okay, good. Seven, the terms of the covenant. Okay, the terms. Essentially, the terms are, are simple. Essentially, God is giving all of the land to Abram and his descendants. God is providing protection for us. God is bringing us salvation. God is doing everything. God is doing all these things for us. Okay, That's his part of the covenant. Our part of the covenant is essentially that we live by his commandments, which is essentially all of all the whole Bible, essentially. We are, we are committing to live according to God's commandments. That's our part of the covenant. And God's part is that he is providing everything for us, okay? The, the memorial meal, and again, maybe many of us picked up on this when we were reading the memorial meal, right? The memorial meal was exchanging, like, so we have bread, we break it. I feed you my half, you feed me your half. Same thing with wine, which represents our body and blood, okay? Very clearly, this is something that Christ did, right? In 1 Corinthians 11. It says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Right? This is the memorial meal that we share and that we share it in communion every time we attend the liturgy and we partake of communion. This is the memorial meal. And this memorial is reminding us of the covenant. Right? Every time we eat of it, we remember the covenant that God made. And then finally, number nine, planting the memorial tree. The memorial tree is the cross that was sprinkled with the blood of Christ, right? Just as they would plant a tree and sprinkle it with the blood of the people, the memorial tree is the cross that was sprinkled with the blood of Christ where we remember every time we look at the cross, we remember the sacrifice um, that he made for us. So really, really like the depth of this ritual and how God fulfilled this ritual, right? Some in a very literal way here in this vision and others had not yet been like seen. Like at this point, Abraham, I didn't know any of it, like didn't know all of these things, but we looking back now and, and understanding how God has fulfilled the covenant and the work of salvation and the incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection, we see how God has fulfilled all of these nine steps in this covenant with us as humanity. Okay. Does anyone have any questions or comments before we go on? Um, since if God doesn't die on the cross, our sins will not be forgiven. Yes. Is it how we die? Is it how we die and resurrect in baptism? Not, uh, not sure what. Uh, That's done. The, that was uh, given during the when we talked about. Uh, Oh, oh, that's the uh, answer the to flesh. the question. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yes, thank you. Um, when I say baptism and chrismation. Uh, yeah. Why didn't Abraham cut the birds in two? I tried to find some information about what the meaning behind that was, but honestly, I couldn't find I couldn't find any. Why did he uh, he not cut the birds in two, but he cut those other ones? I couldn't find any information about that, but that's a good question. Yeah. Thinking about it like uh, it it's a very it resembles a, a, another ritual from Leviticus like the ritual of like forgiveness of sin when we have to offer two birds one bird had to die the other bird had to fly away but in that case we killed one bird so um, I'm not sure yeah. but I'm here we're sure. like instead of the bird we have the, the animals that died but perhaps the didn't yeah um, okay moving on on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Okay, so he, this is the land, and this is the land that eventually the people are going to inherit. After they are freed from slavery in Egypt, after they wander in the desert for 40 years, and then through the leadership of Moses and Joshua, then Joshua leads them into the promised land. This is, this is the, the promised land. I also want to point out one thing that we read in verse 16. It says, but in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Okay, what does that mean? 
a lot of times when people ask this question of why, you know, God is, is punishing, you know, or God is, is cruel to tell the Israelites to go and enter into the land of Canaan and to destroy all the people that are there. That's what they ended up doing, right? All the Canaanite peoples that were living there in the land of Canaan, um, which is Israel, uh, they crossed in and God said to destroy them all, right? Um, here, it gives you a glimpse as to what is in the mind of God, because it says they shall return here, meaning the Israelites shall return here to this land where Abraham is now, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, meaning these peoples, the Amorites was one of the group of peoples that lived there in that land. These peoples, okay, were an evil people, and they committed evil for generations. And so it was time according to God's judgment, to, um, to punish them for all of the iniquity that they had lived for generations. And so he's saying the timing of when those Israelites are going to enter into the promised land is related to the iniquity of the Amorites. Like they're still, like, like according to God's timing, he's giving them more time, right? Their iniquity is not yet complete. Like they're still sinning, Right. And there is still some time that God has, has allocated for judgment in the future. And God uses the Israelites as the means of judgment for those people. So it is not like these people were just like living uh, peacefully and, and, you know, in their land. And then suddenly God takes the land away from them. They're being judged by God. And God uses the Israelites to judge. Just like, for instance, when the Israelites were, um, when the Israelites were sinning against God, God uses the Babylonians or the Assyrians to judge them, right? To come and to conquer them. So, so this is the way that God, the way that God operates. <clears throat> okay. Number, or Genesis 16. We now have the story of Hagar and Ishmael. Okay. It says, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go in to my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, uh, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abraham to be his wife after Abram had dwelt in 10 years in the land of Canaan. So Sarai, knowing that she, um, you know, well, it says, has restrained me from bearing children. So she said, okay, well, we've tried to have children, um, but it hasn't worked. So go and try to have a child with our maid, right? Hagar. St. John Chrysostom, he writes about this, and he believes that Sarai, um, wasn't sure whether it was her or her husband that was the one unable to, to have children, like what was the issue. So she allowed him to do this, assuming that her husband was the one responsible for the deprivation of children and gave him to her maidservant just to be sure. And when uh, Hagar conceived, Sarai was actually very distressed because she realized that the barrenness was a result of her own infertility. So up until that point, that you know, she didn't know what was to blame, and she assumed that it was her husband, 
And just to be sure, she allowed this. She, according to St. John Chrysostom, she didn't really want him to have a son through uh, Hagar, but this was a, a means for her to understand more about what was going on, okay? Um, but that's what happened. Um, instead of waiting and, and, and trying, they thought, well, maybe this would be a means for us to have children because she was not bearing children um, otherwise. So he went into Hagar and she conceived and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarai said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. So, of course, you know, having a situation like this between Sarai and Hagar, there is like animosity now between them because of this and jealousy. Um, and also... You know, essentially, Sarai's, you know, this, this, this son that's now coming is not her own, right? And so there was this tension and, 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 and animosity between the two of them. But apart from the details of what happened, um, there is a lot of symbolism in this. And actually, St. Paul speaks about this symbolism between Sarai and Hagar and what it represents, okay? So I'm going to read for you in Galatians chapter 4. Right, which describes kind of what Hagar represents and what uh, Sarai represents, and we can discuss it a little bit. Okay, so this is in Galatians 4, starting in verse 22. St. Paul, he says this. He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, because we know later he's going to have Isaac. The one by a bondwoman, okay, who was Hagar, the other by a free woman, who is Sarai, okay, because Hagar was like a bondservant. She wasn't free. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh and he of the free woman through the promise. Why? Because the reason, the idea that, that uh, Ishmael, who is Hagar's son, was born according to the flesh is because she had the natural ability to bear children. She didn't have, she wasn't barren, right? So she was born like naturally. She was born as a natural child because, she, because Hagar is not, was not barren. But the one who came from the free woman, who is Sarai, was born through a promise because Sarai was barren. She had no natural means to conceive of children. So the child that was born was, was, was a miraculous child, was born through the promise because God promised. So that's how she was able to bear, not because she had the natural ability to bear children. Okay, so that's why here St. Paul is referring to the son of the bondwoman as born according to the flesh and the son of the free woman born according to the promise, okay? Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants. So now he's saying, what, is, what, what do these represent? What do the, these two sons represent? These are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which give birth to bondage. So this represents the Old Testament covenant, right? The one from Mount Sinai is the Ten Commandments, the law, Okay. This represents the, the old covenant. This represents the covenant of bondage, okay, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. Okay, So it's like representing the earthly Jerusalem. It's representing like the Old Testament law. It's representing um, the, the law that could not save. Okay. Um, 
But the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem, okay, which is the mother of us all, right? This is representative of uh, Sarai, okay? She represents the, the mother of the, of the church because it is through her that the Messiah came, it is through her that the church came. Now we brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise, right? We are not, the, 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 the church is not the natural children, right? The natural was the Jews that were chosen by God in the Old Testament to be the children of God, okay? But we are the children of promise, we, have, we are the ones who have become the children of God through a miracle, which is through the sacrifice of Christ, okay? But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. So saying the, those who were the Jews, right, were persecuting the Christians, right, because they hated them. Those who uh, were the natural were attacking those who were the spiritual, those who were from the earthly Jerusalem are attacking those of the heavenly Jerusalem, okay? Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman, right? So the inheritance is to the son of the free woman. The son of the free woman, the child of promise, represents the church, right? So we are the ones that are inheriting all of the benefits of the promises of, of God to the people of God, okay? So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free, right? So here the distinction is looking at that, the, that Hagar and the, the child of Hagar, Ishmael, represents the old covenant, right, with the Jewish people in the Old Testament, whereas Isaac represents the new covenant in the New Testament for the people of God, which is now the church, okay? And that the church is the one that is to inherit all the promises of God here in the New Testament. And so here, Sarai represents like the nations and the church like of the New Testament, like not, not just the Jewish people. Also here we see that the faith of Abraham and Sarai faltered, you know, just as before when they fled to Egypt because of the famine in the land of Canaan, without getting God's uh, approval, without seeking God's guidance, and they went there. So also here we see that they're acting on their own. Sarai decided that she wanted to try this, right? Even though there was no indication at all that God wanted them to do this. And he said that the, 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 the child was gonna come from Abram with his wife. Why, why would it have to like, have a relationship with his bondwoman? So Abram and, uh, said to Sarai, indeed your maid is in your hand, do to her as you please. Okay, so now that Hagar had given birth, so he's telling Sarai, now there is this enmity between the two of them. He's telling Sarai, uh, your maid is in your hand, do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. So um, Hagar is mistreated by Sarai. Uh, and because of that, she runs away. Okay. And when she's in the wilderness there, like after having run away, the angel of the Lord finds her. The angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnation of Christ. This is one of the pre-incarnate appearances of the Lord Christ. And we see how 
God has such care for Hagar. Hagar here was, was mistreated, right? Number one, she had no choice in anything that she was that she did, right? She didn't do anything wrong. She was told to do this and she obeyed. And after she had a, a son, as Sarai was seeking, then she became despised, right? So Hagar didn't do anything wrong. And because of that, God had mercy on her. He found her in the wilderness, right? And he comforted her, okay? And even though she wasn't the one through whom the Messiah would come, God still had compassion and mercy because she had committed nothing wrong, okay? And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. The, the name Ishmael means God listened, right? And in, he, she named him this and God asked her to name him this because God is listening to her plea. And so she will have this son. His name will be Ishmael. Um, and because Hagar like submitted and agreed to live in peace and submission to Sarai, he also promised her many descendants, right? He says um, uh, that, that she would be, like he would be a mighty nation, okay? Um, but also God says that he will have many enemies. And actually it is through Ishmael. Ishmael is the ancestor of the Arab people and the ancestor of the Muslim nation. It all, it came through Ishmael. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. Okay, so this name Bir Lahai Roy means where the living God has seen. And she called him this. She called the name of the Lord. You are the God who sees because he saw her plight. He saw what was happening to her, right? And she's saying, have I also here seen him who sees me? Like the one who sees me, the one who like, uh, like looks upon me, right? Is the one that who I have now seen. Um, so here we're saying Hagar did not consent, okay? Well, it, back in this time, in this age, right? People had concubines and wives okay it, it wasn't like today where you know it's like two people like fall in love and they decide to get married okay you 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 had a certain position and yes definitely by today's standards this isn't something that would be acceptable um but at that time this wouldn't be considered rape this is considered um a person who um has multiple wives and actually this isn't the only uh, person who who Abraham is going to have children with. Uh, so it was considered at that time like something that was common and acceptable. Um, certainly by today's standards, it is not. And actually, even by, by Old Testament standards, 
Um, God did not intend for people to have multiple wives or multiple concubines. Um, but, um, but sadly, that was a standard that was, you know, that was lived by in many, many, many people, right? Even King David, for instance, King David, who was praised by God, who God said about him that he was a man after his own heart, he had multiple wives. King Solomon, who was one of the, you know, the wisest kings that ever lived, he had hundreds of wives and concubines. So it's, it's not to say that it was a kind of a rape or that, it's, that she did not consent, but this was her position. This was her, 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 her position in the, in the family, her position in like the, 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 the army of servants that they had at the time. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. So indeed, Ishmael was born, um, and at the time that Ishmael was born, Abram was 86. And so um, when Isaac was to be born, uh, Isaac was going to be born when Abram was 100 years old. So at that time when Isaac was born, Ishmael was already 14 years old. And that's important because during those 14 years, Abram believed that Ishmael was the one because God never rebuked uh, Abram for what he did here. He never said anything about, no, this isn't actually the one that is going to be the child of promise. He just let everything go for 14 years. And then at that point, God told him, now is the time that you're going to have the child that I've promised you, which his name will be Isaac and that you will have him through Sarai. So it's, it's interesting how God, you know, sometimes we, we, we take an action and we think that that action that we've taken is God's will because it's getting us what we want. Like it's, it's, it's moving us forward in the direction that we want and even in the direction that we know God has promised, right? But it wasn't God's will for, for Abram to do this, right? And Sarai to do this. And yet God never spoke up, never said anything. He remained quiet and silent. For 14 years or 13 years until it was time for him to tell Abram that now he's going to have uh, a son with his wife when he's 100 years old, right? And of course, at the time, when, when, when that's, we're going to read about that in the next chapter, there was some confusion and there was some worry about this. It's like, you know, and Abraham would say, why not Ishmael? <laughs> uh, because that was his plan, but that wasn't God's plan. God wanted someone between Sarai and Abram. This is a good stopping point uh, for today. And so let's uh, just conclude in a prayer. And the next time we can continue from chapter 17. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing. We ask, O God, that you be with us and you teach us in the important lessons that we can learn from reading your word. We ask, O God, that we have the faith of Abraham, that we are able to live like him and that we are able to respond so quickly to your prompting and to your requests and to your commands. We ask, O oh Lord, to increase our faith, especially during these difficult days where many things around us are happening in a way that we do not understand. We trust in you, O oh Lord, and we ask that you would deliver us and you would lead us into the way everlasting. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us as they are daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory 
forever and ever. Amen.